start really at the very beginning. You see, because in the very beginning, God created man and woman. And he placed them in a place called Eden. It was a mountain garden. It says this in Ezekiel 28, that Eden was the garden of God, the holy mountain of God. And it was in Eden that four rivers started to flow. There was one river, and out of those four rivers, four rivers began to flow. So it was clearly a a, a high mountain garden. God placed Adam and Eve, he placed them there to work in the garden and to take care of it. And in this garden, they had everything they needed. They could eat from any tree in the garden bar one, the tree of the, uh, of the knowledge of good and evil. And God said they weren't to eat of that tree, but they could eat of any other tree. They could have whatever they wanted. If they ate from that tree, God said it will result in spiritual death. So I'm giving you everything else, but don't eat of that tree. And so God used to come, we're told, and walk with them in the cool of the day. God came and walked in his mountain garden with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. What a beautiful picture of how God intended life to be. The earliest Greek translation of the Old Testament translates the Hebrew word for garden as paradisos, from which we get the word paradise. It was an amazing place. It was a beautiful place. It was a place that each and every one of us would love to be. Adam and Eve lacked for nothing. They literally lived in heaven on earth. They lived with their creator and they willingly and happily and lovingly obeyed everything that he asked them to do. They lived in what the writer of the Proverbs calls the fear of of the Lord, a loving reverence for God. He was their creator. They were contented. And the proverb we're considering this morning simply says that the fear of the Lord will enable us to live truly contented lives. Sadly, most of our lives are the opposite. We're never satisfied with what we have or with our lot in life. Day in, day out, we're bombarded with images, messages, phone calls, all bombarding us, offering us something that will make our lives better. For years, we've had uh, uh, this cheap and cheerful coffee percolator. I love coffee in the morning. Love the smell of it, love getting up, the smell of coffee, it's fantastic. Got this cheap and cheerful coffee percolator. And then one day, I went round to someone's house. We went round to someone's house. And uh, we went there, we were uh, having a meal. And at the end, they said, would you like a coffee? I said, oh, I love coffee, yeah. And then they, got, with, they showed us this brand spanking new shiny coffee maker. It was a Nespresso coffee maker. And I looked at it and I thought, I want one. I want one. Was so, I just thought, in my, deep down in my heart, I thought, I ju- I've got to have one. I have got to have an espresso coffee maker. I've got to have one. And so 
Thereafter, it was about six, it took me six months to get there, to get Annette to the same place. But we got there, and we got a Nespresso coffee. And then one day, I went around somebody else's house. And I went into their house. And uh, this, this person's Mr. Coffee. And uh, he had this coffee maker. It was the size of a cooker. I looked at it, and in my heart, the Nespresso was that's old hat. It's two months old, old hat. I want one. I want one of those. Let me have one. Isn't that how we live life? We never say, I've for years satisfied with my little cheap and cheerful coffee maker. Did the, it may be a great coffee, but when I saw that Nespresso, oh, I had to have it. And when I saw this other one, I'm, I'm sort of now battling with this. I want a big, shiny coffee thingy that sits in the corner. Love it. Oh, what's going on in my heart? What is going on in my heart? God wants to speak to each and every one of us this morning. He doesn't want us to live like lives. He doesn't want me to live a life like that. He wants each one of us to live truly contented lives. And that can only come from being in a right relationship with himself. If we're to truly understand contentment, then first of all, we need to appreciate, the first thing is, we need to appreciate the great lie. The great lie. John Steinbeck wrote this. Where does discontent start? You're warm enough, but you shiver. You're fed, yet hunger gnaws you. You've been loved, but your yearning wanders in new fields. Where does this discontentment come from? You see, at the beginning, Adam and Eve were living fully satisfied lives. Then one day, everything changed. And in Genesis chapter 3, the first six verses, we read that the devil comes in the the form of a serpent to tempt them. And his one great aim is to destroy their close and intimate relationship with God. And the devil subtly sows seeds of doubt into their minds. The great lie is that God is holding out on them. The devil comes and says, you know that tree that God said you couldn't eat from? Well, that's the best one. That's the best one. You know that the, the other trees, they're nice. That's the best one. If you eat from that tree, you'll really live. You'll, in fact, you'll be like God. Actually, what God's doing is he's holding the best back from you. And something was sowed in Adam and Eve's heart in that moment. For the first time, they became discontent, unsatisfied with everything they had. Suddenly, they wanted something that God had said wasn't good for them. Discontentment was sown. The rest is history. Ever since the human race has lived with that discontent sowed into our DNA, we're born with it. This craving for more. If only I had more money. If I had another £10,000, everything would be different. 
If only I had a bigger house. I mean, my house is great three, but if only I had a fourth bedroom, if only I had a third bedroom, if only we had a room in the roof, if only I had a better job, if only I had a newer car, a more expensive holiday, if only I was a member of a health club with a, a sauna and a pool, how amazing would that be? That would change my life. If only I had a more exciting relationship. I've been married years now, but it's a little dull. If only it was a little more exciting. If only I had a relationship. If only I had a relationship, any relationship. If only there was a way to improve my appearance. If only I could do something about my nose or my eyes. If only I could do something about my skin condition. If only I could do something that my legs were a bit longer. If I was a bit slimmer. If only I was a bit younger. If only I was a bit older. And the list goes on and on. If you are going to find true contentment, you need to appreciate the devil's great lie. That God doesn't know what's best for you. You see, the great lie leaves us with the second thing, that an empty void. An empty void. Something at the heart of our being. There's this emptiness, this void that needs to be filled. Kenneth Graham wrote the book, The Wind in the Willows. I don't know if you've read it or read it to your children, maybe. And one of the characters of the book is Toad of Toad Hall. And Toad is rich and he's impulsive. And he flits from one expensive hobby to the other. If you've read the book, it's a, a funny book. It's got great moments in it. Toad flits from punting. He's into punting on, 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 the, on the river. Then it's houseboats. He's into hot air balloons, gypsy caravans, motor cars. Toad is never satisfied. The next thing is always the best thing. Toad's adventures and subsequent disasters never bring him contentment. He's always looking for the one thing that is going to completely satisfy his need. Now you may not know this, but that book was written for Kenneth Graham's son, Alistair. And the tragedy was that as Alistair was growing up, he desperately wanted his father's attention and love. He often wrote from school, he was away in boarding school, he wrote to his father, begging, and uh, the letters uh, are, are around and are recorded today, begging to see his father, begging for his dad to come down and visit him. And his dad would write back, often avoiding the request, and then telling him a story about Toad of Toad Hall. That's what was in his letters. Alistair went away to university and as a young man committed suicide in his early 20s, lying on a train track, dissatisfied. 
There is an empty void at the centre of the heart of every human being ever born, apart from Jesus Christ. The psychologist Abraham Maslow, early in his career, wrote the theory of human motivation and he was looking at human needs and his study concluded that there were levels of need and the basic need was our all, we all have a need for clothes, for food, those sort of things. But the highest, the top need, the, the, the highest human need was for something that he called self-actualization. What he meant by that was it was, it was the need uh, uh, that people had to be the best that they could be. He said that need, that self-need for actualization could be filled, we could be the best by, be, by trying to be the best that we could be, we could achieve and fill that hole in the human heart. That's what he said. Later in his life, towards the end of his life, he changed his view and he wrote another book. And in that book, he actually said that that wasn't the case because the people that were the, uh, uh, that formed part of his study, his study group, the people that he was looking at, high achievers, they found that they, even though that they achieved, even though that they uh, uh, did the best that they could in their lives, that still didn't satisfy them. They were looking for something outside of themselves to fill that hole. And Maslow concluded that there was something, there was something beyond that needed to come and fill the human heart, that hole in the human heart. The writer of the book of Proverbs, Solomon, would have agreed with Maslow. Solomon wrote most of the Proverbs, and in his later years he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon was supposed to be the wisest man that has ever lived, and yet he managed to lose his way in his relationship with God. And he tried everything to fill that subsequent hole, that subsequent gap that was inside him. Trying to fill it with stuff, with relationships, with, in, uh, with learning, with reading books, with trying to understand the scientific world and the natural world around him. And yet there was a hole that could never be filled. And in the book of Ecclesiastes, he wrote things that echo and resonate with each and every one of us. He wrote this in Ecclesiastes 1 verse 7. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. Maybe that's what you feel like. Whatever stuff you try to fill in that part of your life, Somehow it never quite satisfies. It's never quite full enough. In Ecclesiastes 3 verse 11, he wrote this. God has set eternity in the hearts of men. You see, the reality is God made us for relationship with himself. God wants to come and walk with us and for us to know him. God yearns for those days in the Garden of Eden when we walk with him and we know him. And so there's a gap in our hearts that can only be filled with a relationship with God. Have you, like Solomon, been trying to fill that with the wrong thing? If so, you need to know that there's only one answer. 
You may not have heard of someone called Arthur Malcolm Stace. He was an Australian. He was born in 1885, around that time. For, for most of his early years, he was an illiterate drunk. And he got saved. He became a follower of Jesus Christ at the age of 45 years old. He heard someone preaching on Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15. This is what it says. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit. Stace was struck by this thought that there was a God who dwelt in eternity. There was a God, this God who dwelt in eternity wanted to come and have a relationship with him. An illiterate drunk. Nothing going for him. The impact in his life was dramatic. This guy was so impacted by this thought of eternity that the God of eternity wanted to come and dwell in his life, wanted to have a a relationship with him. He started to do something in the streets of Sydney. He would get up early in the morning. He would travel into Sydney and for three or four hours every morning... He would write with a piece of chalk, he would go around, find a wall or a bit of pavement, and he would write, he'd learn to write the word eternity. And he would write it in beautiful script wherever he went. And people would get up in the morning, they would go to work, and they would walk around, and they would find on a wall or on a pavement this word eternity. Stace did it for 35 years. Every day. They eventually found out who was doing it. And they tried to stop him. And and he said, I can't. I'm doing it because the one who dwells in eternity has has put this in my heart. I can't. And actually he became something of a, a little bit of a celebrity in the city. He died in the, uh, uh, I think it was around about 1970, somewhere around then. His legacy was seen at the 2000 Sydney Olympics opening ceremony. The fireworks display were over Sydney Harbour Bridge. But lit up on the bridge during that opening ceremony was the word eternity. What Stace found that his deepest need was met in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Millions of people over the centuries have found that the same is true for them. Numbers of you here this morning know that that's true for you. Lasting contentment that truly satisfies the human heart can only be found in a relationship with God through Jesus. Adam and Eve had been cast out of the garden. They'd been thrown out of the garden. Out of God's mountain garden, out of God's presence, they were cast out, prevented from returning. Ever after, man has wanted to come back into that place, wanted to go back to that mountain garden, go to, back into the presence of God. And we hear echoes of that through the Old Testament. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, we've longed to go back to the presence of God and be in intimate relationship with him, but we're, we're held back from it by our own rebellious hearts. When Jesus came, Jesus said, 
that his father was a gardener, like a gardener. Jesus said, I am the true vine, but my father's the gardener. There's this beautiful picture that runs through scripture of God being a gardener, having God's garden. God wants us to be in his garden, wants us to know him as the gardener. And Jesus made it possible. Jesus made it possible when he died on the cross for us. He took God's righteous judgment, punishment for our rebellion, our sin, our wrongdoing, even though he was completely innocent. If we put our faith in Jesus, if we believe that he died for us at the cross, if we believe that he rose from the dead, his The Bible says we're born again. Something happens in our heart. That gap in our hearts is filled. God's spirit comes to dwell within us. That's what it says. Suddenly, once again, we can learn to walk with God on a daily basis. God with us. When Jesus came, it said, they called him Emmanuel. God with us. Now we can know God with us every day. We can walk with him again. When Jesus rose from the dead that Easter Sunday morning, when the tomb was, the, the stone was rolled away and Jesus came out of the tomb, the first person to meet him was Mary in the garden, in the cool of the morning. And she thinks he's the gardener. She says, Where have you put his body? Thinking he's the gardener. And Jesus says, Mary. In that moment, she knows he is the Son of God. She knows that this Jesus has risen from the dead, that he's the Messiah, that she, he is all she has ever wanted or ever needed. She was the first person to walk with Jesus in the garden again. God wants that for each and every one of us. Each and every one of us. If you're here this morning and you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, you can do that today. You can, learn, you can come to walk with him and know him and have that hole in your heart filled once and for all. Maybe you're here this morning and you know that you've been trying to fill your life. You've been a Christian maybe for years and you've been trying to fill your life with all sorts of stuff. You've taken your eyes off Jesus and somehow your life is filled with all sorts of things. You've been tempted and you know that there is a discontent deep down in your heart. Well, God wants to deal with that this morning. A.W. Pink says this, Satan is ever seeking to inject that poison into our hearts to distrust God's goodness, especially in connection with his commandments. A discontent with our position and portion, a craving for something that which God has wisely held from us. Reject any suggestion that God is unduly severe with you. Resist with the utmost abhorrence anything that causes you to doubt God's love and his loving kindness towards you. Allow nothing to make you question the Father's love. Are you content? If not, then you need to know my final point. You need to know the profound mystery 
You see, Proverbs 19, 23, the proverb we read right at the very beginning, tells us that the fear of the Lord, a right relationship with God, will lead to true and lasting contentment. Paul sums it up in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6. He says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Earlier in writing the same letter to Timothy, he says that the mystery of godliness is Jesus Christ. Contentment is found in Jesus Christ. In around AD 62, Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. He's probably in prison. He's probably chained to a guard. As he writes the letter, he makes a profound statement. He's in prison. Life is tough for him. He says this, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Paul is saying, is, what he's saying is Jesus Christ is enough whatever situation I'm in. He is sufficient for me. But, the, the, but it's a secret that needs to be learnt. And that takes diligence. That takes effort on our part. How do we do that? Well, very quickly. The first thing, we need to be grateful. We need to be grateful people. If you're going to learn to be content, you need to be grateful. The Bible's full of encouragements to be thankful for all that God has given us. We need to remember that every good thing that we have comes from God. That's what it says in James chapter 1, verse 17. A tragic illustration of this in the Bible is in Psalm 106, verse 13 to 15. It talks about, it's describing the events of the children of Israel as they wander through the wilderness. They're wandering around the wilderness and God is trying to teach them to trust him. And so every day they have to rely on God for food. And so God miraculously provides manna. This like wafer stuff that appears on the ground in the morning and they have to collect this manna. They have to do it every day. And the writer of the psalm is recalling those days when they used to do that. And the problem was, within days and weeks, they got fed up with manna. And they started moaning and complaining and grumbling. God was miraculously providing them bread, fresh bread, every morning. And all they could do was moan and complain. They missed the miracle and basically said, God, give us meat. They started craving for meat. They weren't grateful to God for his provision. And the psalmist says that God sent a wasting disease among them to teach them a lesson. In the King James Version, the old version, it says this. He sent leanness into their soul. Their lack of gratefulness resulted in a loss of contentment. What about you? Is there a leanness in your soul? Is there a veneer that everything's okay, but actually it's about that deep? Actually, when troubles come, 
first thing that comes out of your mouth, you start to complain and moan. Are you someone who is never satisfied? Are you someone who is known for being grateful? Or are you someone who complains? Are you someone who is able to be positive and find the positive in the most difficult situation? Or are you someone who just grizzles and complains about what you don't have? God wants us to learn to be grateful people. You see, the second thing is God wants us to trust him. In Hebrews chapter 13 verse 5, it says this. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Be content with what you have in terms of money. I don't know about you, but this is how it works in my heart. So I have some money. For argument's sake, we'll say a thousand pounds. And I go, oh, a thousand pounds, that's amazing. I could do this, I could, could take a net out for a meal. That's good. <laughs> I could buy some trousers. That'd be good. I could, oh, we could do that. And we could, we could do that. And we could do that as well. That would be good. And, oh, that new coffee maker. <laughs> oh. But I'll need, actually, I'll need 1,500 pounds for that, not 1,000. Oh, that's a pity. Oh, if only it was 1,500, not 1,000. Isn't that how, what we're like? That's what our hearts are like. It's never enough. We're never grateful for what we have. We, suddenly it's gone. It's spent. And suddenly it's... What, what the writer in Hebrews is saying, be content with what you have. Because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. The principle is this. If God is sovereign, if he, he is who he says he is, if he loves us as much as he says he does, will he not, having already given us, given us his only son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross, will he not give us everything that we need? Not everything we want, but everything we truly need. If that's the case, then we need to trust him and learn to be content where we are, knowing that God knows what's best for us. This means we can rest peacefully in our relationship with him. It's a hard lesson to learn. You see, whatever you are facing, physically, emotionally, spiritually, you can trust God to meet your needs. I want to say that is not fatalism. Sometimes we can just be fatalistic and go, okay, sirrah, sirrah, then whatever will be. No, 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 no. The Bible talks us and encourages us to pray and bring our requests to God. This is part of the profound mystery. God wants us to pray. In fact, he knows what we need before we even ask it. But he wants us to be people who trust him to provide for us. So he wants us to be people to cry to him. And sometimes we ask for the wrong things and God shapes our hearts and deals with our hearts as we pray and ask. God wants us to be people who trust him. Trust God. Finally, be satisfied with what we have. Be grateful, trust God, be satisfied with what we have. Paul says this, if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. I tell you, it is so tough to be content in such a materialistic world. 
This is such a hard lesson for us to learn. I was uh, reading a Puritan writer born in around 15, I think it was around about 1590, lived through the 1600s, early part of the 1600s, the 17th century, a guy called Jeremiah Burroughs. And he wrote a book called this, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. Now, I don't know about you, I tend to think, you think about, oh, lived it, it was the Dark Ages back then. What do they know about it? In our, our sophisticated, well, what do those guys know about it? I want to tell you, they learn some things that we would do well to learn in these days. This is what Burroughs said. A Christian comes to contentment not so much by way of addition as by way of subtraction. Not so much by adding to what he has, but rather by subtracting from his desires. A heart that has no grace and is not instructed in this mystery of contentment knows no way of no way to get contentment but to have his possessions raised up to his desires. But the Christian has another way of contentment. That is, he can bring his desires down to his possessions and so he attains his contentment. The point is he's saying this. This is where we're at. These are our, this is where we are in life. This is what we have. But we have these wants, these needs, these desires, these hopes. And so what we do is we try to reach to this level. And, and then when we start to do that, we start getting discontented. And what this guy is saying is this, is we need to learn to bring our desires down to the level of what we have. We need to learn to be content with what God has given us in the moment. And whether it's we lack for something or whether we have plenty, we can be content. Because in the moment, we know that God is enough for us. He knows what we need. So we can bring in our request and we say, God, I need this, but I'm so grateful for what you've given me. That is the art of Christian contentment. You see, contentment is the fruit of walking closely with God. Is your life marked by it? I tell you, I can stand here this morning and say, I tell you, this is a battleground. And I know it's a battleground probably for each and every one of you in one way, shape or form. Whatever your circumstances, is Jesus Christ enough for you? Learn the lesson of contentment. Be grateful in every circumstance. Actively trust God. Be satisfied with your lot. A.W. Tozer said this. I want you to listen to this. This is magnificent. He said, Christ is enough. Christ is enough. To have him and nothing else is to be rich beyond conceiving. To have all else and not have Christ is to be a cosmic pauper, cut off from all that will matter at last. Is Christ enough for you? Jeremiah Burroughs, and I'm going to finish with this, says this. To be well skilled in the mystery of Christian contentment is the duty, glory and excellence of a Christian. 
That man or woman who is never without a contented spirit can truly never be said to want much. Oh, the word holds forth a way of full of comfort and peace to the people of God in this world. You may live happy lives in the midst of all the storms and tempests in the world. There is an ark you may come into and no men in the world may live such comfortable, cheerful and contented lives as the saints of God. Oh, that we may learn this lesson.